Hey there, welcome to Football with Grant Wall. Thanks so much for joining me. And while I've got you, you can sign up for a free or paid subscription to my newsletter at grantwall.com. It has all my writing, including magazine-style features, breaking news, opinion pieces, and on-location stories for every U.S. Men's World Cup qualifier. That's grantwall.com. Today's interview guest is Andrew Downey, who has a really good new book that's an oral history on the 1970 World Cup. There's no soccer talk with Chris Whittingham this time because I am on a reporting trip in Eastern Europe. Our guest now is a terrific writer and a friend of mine. Andrew Downey is a Scottish journalist who splits his time between Sao Paulo and London. He's the author of the phenomenal new oral history book, The Greatest Show on Earth, The Inside Story of the Legendary 1970 World Cup. Andrew, it's great to see you. Congratulations on the book, and thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for inviting me. It's great to see you. It's been a long time. It has been a long time, and you may not remember this, but I do. That The first time we met was December 2nd, 2013, in Sao Paulo, and you welcomed me to a dinner at your apartment with some wonderful people, not knowing that it was my 40th birthday and everyone was so awesome. And I think saying me happy birthday in Portuguese at one point, um, that was a really fun night and, and just have a lot of good memories. Yeah, I, I think uh, I probably made risotto because it's about one of the few things that I'm really good at making. So, <laughs> you know, you can always get a bunch of people around to the house, make a risotto and just throw out there a few bottles of wine, a few drinks, a few beers. <laughs> Uh, so it was a good night, and it was yeah, I do remember it. It was a it was a great time. It was just after the Confederations Cup, and when Brazil was gearing up for the World Cup. Uh, I know you'd been down, and we're planning on coming down, you know, a lot more before the World Cup, and and during the World Cup. So it was nice to to finally meet up and and put a put a face to the face to the name. Yeah, no, really, really good time with you there, and congratulations on the book. It's a terrific read. It's just come out in the United States, and. There were a couple specific reasons I really enjoyed the book. One, I honestly didn't know that much about the 1970 World Cup in Mexico. And two, you were able to do interviews with players in that tournament, in some cases who may not be with us much longer, just due to age and how much time has passed. What led to you pursuing this as a book idea? Well, I was quite lucky because it was a publisher that came to me with the idea um, I think they realised that the 1970 World Cup was always going to be primarily about Brazil. And so they wanted somebody who knew, you know, Brazilian football history and asked me if I would be willing to take it on. And it was, a, it was a, it's actually a Scottish publisher, um, just coincidentally. So they also knew that I think there would be a big interest in it in England because, you know, England, this was really the last time England went to a tournament expecting to win. So, you know, they were world champions and that whole, that whole English factor, that was also important. So somebody who had a foot in both, in both worlds, I think, was, was important to them. Yeah, I, I mean, just the, the accounts of the, the England-Brazil game in this book are, are fascinating, but also, also the other Brazil games and, and just such an amazing Brazil team. Um, the 1970 World Cup, transformational in a lot of ways. And I was wondering if you could explain to our listeners what some of those things were. Yeah, I mean, as I said in the in the foreword to the book, the 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 1970 World Cup, it was 
it was a World Cup of superlatives. It was both the first World Cup, uh, the World Cup of firsts, and the World Cup of lasts. You know, for example, it was uh, it was a World Cup. It was the first to be held outside Europe or South America. The first to feature substitutes. The first to threaten players with yellow and red cards. The first to have its own ball with Adidas Telstar that everybody remembers going up with with the the black and white panels. Um, and most importantly of all, I think it was the first to be broadcast live and in colour around the world. So that really made it, you know, completely memorable because of all these firsts. But I think it, it it's also the World Cup of lasts in a sense because it, it, it took place right on the cusp of change in football. It, in, in the 70s, football started to become more of a business. And that really still wasn't the case in 1970. You know, you, you didn't have... Uh, you know, sponsorship was not a huge thing yet. You know, some players had sponsors, but most of the shirts didn't have sponsors. Brazil, funnily enough, even wore uh, shirts by two different sponsors <laughs> in one game. One half they wore a shirt from uh, Umbro, and the other half they wore a shirt from Atletica, which was a uh, Atleta, which was a Brazilian uh, shirt manufacturer. So there was all this kind of stuff that was that was happening in football, and football was just about to change. And I think that's really that's really looking back at it, it's really clear to see that in the nineteen seventy World Cup that 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 shift from football has been a kind of amateur, all about the game, to becoming a, a a real big business that's that's about money. You know what's interesting is I a friend of mine several years ago sent me a video of the nineteen seventy World Cup final between Brazil and Italy. And this was actually long enough ago that he sent me a VHS videotape. <laughs> and But I remember watching it, and maybe it was before YouTube got really big, but the, the sport itself, watching the game itself, it was a different sport in some ways back then. And it was still beautiful. And obviously this Brazil team is sort of the apotheosis of that. But... In what ways was the actual sport different to watch back then? Well, I think primarily it's the it's it's the speed. The game today is just so much faster. It's so much faster. The players cover so much more ground. You know, you you need to have so much more stamina. You need to have so much more power. You need to have so much more muscle mass. You know, all these things are are really apparent. You look at it now, and 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 you know the, the players can still. I mean, they're still you know, is skillful. And the players in 1970, and, and they will argue that they were more skillful than, than most players today. But I, I think the big thing is, is the speed. And I always have this discussion to extend this out a little bit. I always have this debate with people who rate Messi and Maradona, particularly Messi, as better than Pelé. And without getting into that discussion, because that could be, you know, that could be a whole series of podcasts. <laughs> but without getting into that discussion, I think people forget that in Pele's time in the 1960s, 1970s, uh, you had, you know, the ball was heavier, uh, the shirts were heavier, um, the pitches weren't as flat. Um, what else? Uh, the the boots were heavier. Mm -hmm. You know, the the ball. Believe it or not, you can. The ball was even is even rounder today. You know. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so all that stuff, I think, has a has a people forget that when they're talking about how how you know superior Messi is or how they say people forget that when they when they say that Messi was superior to Brazil. I think the conditions today, you know, are much are much better for footballers 
than they were back in the 60s and 70s. No, that makes sense to me in an argument perspective. How did you go about tracking down all these players from different countries for interviews in this oral history? Well, I started off mostly with Brazil because Brazil was what I I know. I mean, I I knew where there was a a lot of good archive stuff about Brazil. So, you know, a lot of the, you know, quite a few of the players are no longer with us. Carlos Alberto, uh, Felix Everaldo, um, off off the top of my head, you know, they're, they're no longer with us. So, you know, I had to go after some of the big guys. So the big guys are, are Rivellino, Jairzinho, Pelé, Gerson. And these guys, these guys are world champions. These, this is probably the greatest team of all time or one of the greatest teams of all time. They don't give away their time for free. So it was very difficult to find a lot of the Brazilian players firsthand. I think I got to speak to three or four of them for the book. Uh, I also was working on a documentary at the time uh, that I got to speak to a lot more than we got to speak to Jairzinho and Rivellino and, and Gerson and uh, a few others. So, you know, I, I got to meet them firsthand. Uh, so the, the Brazil part was, was quite easy because, because, because that team is so important, there's a lot written about Brazil. You know, Pelé wrote his own, his own it came out as a book, but it was eventually as a, as a series in, in a Brazilian magazine all about the 1970 World Cup. Zagallo wrote a book all about the 1970 World Cup. And the same thing went for England. I mean, Bobby Moore, Martin Peters, they wrote books just about the 1970 World Cup. I'm actually surprised that that more players don't do it now. There may be sponsorship uh, or commercial reasons for it, but I'm surprised that they, they don't take advantage and actually just write a book you know, on the day-to-day uh, goings-on of, of big tournaments. Because the books from 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 Zagallo and from from Bobby Moore and Martin Peters are sensational, because mm-hmm. they talk you through every game, they talk you through the preparations, they talk you through the training, they they talk you through what was going on, the personalities. It's fantastic. So, you know, Brazil and England was 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 quite was quite straightforward. Uh, there's not a lot of England players that are still alive, unfortunately. So that that was hard. I spoke to two or three two or three England players, three or four England players. And then it was a case of talking to, you know, players from other countries. And what I really wanted to do with this, it was really important to me that this was not a book just about Brazil or just mm-hmm. about England. I, I really thought this had to be a book about, you know, all 16 countries. So, you know, m- this was the first time an African country had qualified automatically for the World Cup. You know, Morocco were there. Um, Israel were there at their, at their one and only World Cup. You know, El Salvador were there just after the, the famous soccer war, which was... Mm-hmm. You know, a, a you know a big issue in, in in the qualifying process. So I wanted to get a lot of these stories in as well. Uh, what I did was I, I I got in touch with a lot of journalists around the world uh, in a lot of these countries, and I basically hired them as researchers and said to them, "Listen, can you find me you know one or two players from this country, from your country, and you know here's a bunch of questions. Please interview them for me. I'll pay you, and then we'll put it in the book." So I had people, you know, I had great, you know, people who helped me were fantastic. You know, a guy in Mexico, a guy in Bulgaria, a guy in the Soviet Union or Russia now. Um, so they were great. And that gave out a whole new, uh, uh, various different layers. And that was really important to me to get all this other stuff in. I was excited to see Mordecai Spiegler, the former New York Cosmos player from Israel who played in that World Cup quoted in this. Very nice man, interviewed him a few years ago when I was in Israel for a story. Um, and he and, actually played. Yes. Sorry, Spiegler played for for the Cosmos with, with Pelé in large part because he was he was quite good at that World Cup. He went to mm-hmm. 
he went to uh, uh, racing in Paris, I think, and then, or was it PSG? He went to, to, to France, uh, and then he was a success there, and, and he moved to, to the Cosmos of Pelé. Yep, yep. And it's interesting, when you hear some of these players from these other teams talk about their experiences, I was struck by how many teams in that World Cup stayed in Mexico for several weeks before the tournament started, and also how many of those teams had travel misadventures um, along the way. And I was wondering, what were some of the teams that stood out to you the most in terms of the, uh, the sort of travel misadventure front? Well, I mean, the big reason they, they were all in Mexico for a long time was because of the, the altitude. They all wanted to spend, you know, or needed to spend time there to acclimatize to the altitude of playing in Mexico City. I mean, Brazil famously went there, I think they were in, in, in Mexico for six weeks beforehand, five mm. or six weeks beforehand. Um, and they went to Guanajuato and Irapuato and, and, and they, they trained at high altitude and then they came down and they knew that if they, they knew that by the time they had to go to Mexico, the, the acclimatization process was still going to be in full effect, even though they were playing at Guadalajara, which was a, a lower, a lower altitude. So that was, that was really, that was really important to, to, to Brazil. And, and I think, I think in many ways that changed football. I think that 1970 World Cup changed football because Brazil were so good physically. They had prepared so well physically. They used some NASA uh, expertise in their preparations even, which was you know, completely unheard of in Brazil. Uh, they prepared so well that I think 12 of the goals they scored, uh, 12 of the 19 goals were scored in the second half, which showed you how fit they were. Because Brazil always thought that, you know, and they still do, we have the best players in the world, technically. Um, so if we can match everyone else for speed and stamina, then we'll win. That was the way they thought back then. Uh, and I think the fact that Brazil managed to do that, because they were so fit physically, I think it really forced other countries to up their game physically in the World Cups to come. And as you saw, as we saw in 1974 and 1978, you know, these were quite physical World Cups. And I think that was a consequence of what had happened in, in, in Mexico in, in 1970. It's also a reminder to me, or just a contrast with today's game, right? Where the, the players are being asked to play so many games in a year, it's impossible to imagine getting your national team together for five or six weeks before a World Cup and going to the host country and spending time there. So it's just huge contrast there. Um, in terms of like the the Brazil team in particular, um, which of the 70 Brazil players were you able to speak to in the end? Well, I think I did uh, interviews for the book with, um, let me think, Ado, who was a reserve goalkeeper, mm. Zé Maria, who was a uh, reserve left-back with Rivellino, who I'd spoken to a few times before. Um, let me think, let me go through them. Uh, uh, Everaldo, Everaldo and Carlos Alberto with the fullbacks, Brito and Piazza, uh, midfield, Gerson, Rivellino and Clodoaldo, and up front, Tostão. Spoke to Tostão. Um, Pelé, of course, is very hard to get. And who else is up front? Gerzinho. So I spoke to Gerzinho, Rivellino, Gerson, uh, Brito, and Clodoaldo for uh, the documentary. I also met with Edu, who played in a couple of uh, played in one game, I think. Uh, played in all the qualifiers, uh, and Paulo Cesar Lima Caju, mm -hmm. who played in two of the games, 
He took over from Gerson when he was injured. So all told, you know, I spoke to, you know, I spoke to probably half the squad, not all of them for the book, but when I, when I speak to them for the documentary, then it, it helped me, it helped me, you know, get a handle on what was, what was right and what was wrong and, you know, give me all that background. And this was 51 years ago. So what kind of memories did, did they have? And, and were you ever surprised by, in some cases, maybe how specific their memories were of certain things? What I've found, not just for this book, but for you know, other reporting that I've done, is that footballers, and probably all of us really, we have you know, a set number of stories that we know and remember and will tell whenever we meet new people. And I think that's the same with, football, same with footballers. And a lot of these you know, Brazil players, they, they would tell the same stories that they've been telling you know, in interviews for the last 50 years, which was fine. Which is fine because the stories tend to be good ones and important ones, and that's the reason they're still telling them today. So, but it is a problem. Yeah, a lot of these, a lot of these players are are are, you know, they're old. They're in their they're in their seventies. Uh, you know, it's not always easy to remember a lot a lot of what what happened. Yeah, and. It's interesting. I went to Guadalajara in Mexico for the first time. I think it was 1999. Confederations Cup was there and games were played in Estadio Jalisco, which is still there. And that's where Brazil played so many of their games in this World Cup. But even in 1999, I remember some things sticking out to me. I think there was a statue of Pelé outside the Estadio Jalisco, as I recall. And I was told what a close relationship the people of Guadalajara had with that Brazil team from 1970. And yeah. I thought it was interesting because Mexico had obviously hosted a subsequent World Cup in 1986, which had all of its own stories and Maradona and all that. But it seemed like the con like this connection with 1970 and Brazil and that team was even stronger than anything with the Mexican people in 86. How did that happen? And... Was it also partly a result of the players from Brazil being able to interact a little more with the fans and people in Mexico than they would today? Well, I think the first thing was that in the 1960s, Brazilian clubs would often tour the world. It started in the 1950s. You know, teams like Botafogo of Cajicha and Santos of Pelé, they would, they would spend two months a year going around the world uh, doing tours. That was the way they made money. Mm -hmm. uh, so a lot of the Brazilian clubs would go to Mexico every year and play play a few games. So that was, I think, the start of it. You know, once the Brazilian team went to Guadalajara, they were welcomed with open arms. I think, you know, the whole Latin thing is is part of it. Yes, uh, there was a there was also the whole Sir Alf Ramsey factor after 1966. Sir Alf Ramsey had called Argentina animals after. Uh, Argentina, uh, after England knocked out Argentina, uh, Ratan was sent off. And there was a lot of uh, uh, lingering ill will in Latin America towards England, and England were in the same group as Brazil. So the Mexicans supported the Latin American team uh, wholeheartedly against England. Um, so I think these were really, those were the, the main factors. Uh, but you're, you, I mean, you're right about the whole connection. Immediately after the World Cup, I think it was in November, Pelé returned to Mexico. He, he was named a Brazilian ambassador for the occasion and he went as a diplomat to Guadalajara and they inaugurated the, the Plaza Brazil in, in Guadalajara. Uh, and then, you know, that was just, you know, that was it. And some of the players that, that I spoke to in some of the interviews, I mean, they said, 
you know, whenever we played, there would be, you know, half of the stadium would be Mexicans and they were all supporting Brazil. It was like we were playing at home and, and they really couldn't believe it. And the, the players still feel this real kinship with the Mexicans. And, and, and it's, it's really, I mean, it's lovely. Yeah, it really is. I mean, and, and Brazil has that with a couple of places, like Haiti is another place. A lot of Brazilian national team fans to the point where they even staged a game in Haiti uh, several years ago for, I think it was earthquake relief, right? Well, I, I lived in Haiti in 1994. Okay. And I, I spent two years there and the 1994 World Cup was on and Brazil, uh, Haiti was in the middle of a military dictatorship and people were not allowed to gather. They were not allowed to get together. But two, story, two stories I'll never forget about the 1994 World Cup. In Haiti, electricity was rationed. There just wasn't enough power and enough money to pay for it. And the big reservoir was always clogged up and the turbines were never working. So what they did, you, you were usually in Haiti at that point, we would normally get about eight hours of electricity a day, which would happen from about midnight to late in the morning. And then you charged all your batteries and then you, know, you got through the rest of the day. But in, from about February, March, April in 1994, we got we were starting to get two, three, four, five, six hours of electricity a week. Oh wow. Because they were saving up the, the electricity, they were rationing power in order to have enough electricity twenty-four hours a day to broadcast the World Cup because there were some things that you just couldn't mess with. And not broadcasting the World Cup on Haitian TV was one of them. And and that that was you know that was really incredible to me. And then when the final happened, you know, obviously, you know, Brazil beating Italy in the final, there was there was a massive, there was massive demonstrations all over Port-au-Prince. I just remember people being out on the streets, being massive celebrations because the Haitians supported Brazil and they supported Argentina. They supported the two Latin countries, and they also supported Brazil because it was a, it was a, it was a, a black country as well, same mm -hmm. as Haiti. So they felt a real support for them because Haiti had never really had a team. So these are the two things that I really remember about that that. Brazilian kinship with other countries across the across Latin America, particularly Haiti. Yeah, no, it's really cool. And and you do get into this a little bit in your book, in the sense of in 1970, Brazil was run by a military dictatorship, and as as you tell it in the book, when Brazil wins the World Cup and comes to Brasilia to celebrate, the fans were actually allowed to congregate, right? Which which wasn't typical under the dictatorship yeah it was a, a, a similar situation the 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 worst of the brazilian dictatorship started in december 1968 with a, a particularly harsh law that they introduced that did away with uh, closed down congress uh shut down newspapers uh it was a re the repression was really ramped up so that whole 1969 the year of the of the the qualifiers uh you know through 1970 things were really bad. They were called the lead years. Hmm. Uh, but, you know, when Brazil won, the other thing is you would, you would often hear, you hear it still today, there's even a film made about it, you would often hear Brazilians, left-wing Brazilians saying, you know, when the 1970 World Cup came around, you know, I was going to support, you know, Czechoslovakia because it was communist. So that was the first Brazil game. And Brazilians would say, I heard this from, from lots of people, yeah, we sat down to watch it and Czechoslovakia scored and we were like, yeah, great. And then Brazil equalized, and we were like, "Why?" We went wild because, really, even though we 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 in our in our heads we wanted you know, the dictatorship to lose, in our hearts we wanted Brazil to win. Uh, and you saw that by the outpouring of 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 
joy when when Brazil actually won. There was you know tens of thousands of people on the streets, and it was a real. It was a real incredible occasion. Where do you put this 1970 Brazil team in historical perspective? Do you think it's the greatest team of all time? Yeah, I mean, we could have these debates <laughs> until the cows come home, couldn't we? Uh, yeah, I, I think I, I think it's definitely up there. I think it's definitely one of the one of the you know one of the two or three best teams of all time. International teams, let's just say international teams. I mean, mm-hmm. Spain. You know, the recent Spain team that won three tournaments in a row. I mean, you have to you have to give them a shout. Uh, but I mean, Brazil won three out of four World Cups in that nineteen seventy team. You know, I think there's a little bit you know romance to it because of, because of Pelé. You know, winning, coming back from after nineteen sixty six, coming back playing at his you know his absolute you know best. You know, along with a bunch of players who were all you know at their absolute best, and many of whom never really. Played in another World Cup. Claudio Aldo never played in another World Cup. Gerson never played in another World Cup. Carlos Alberto never played in another World Cup. So I think you you had all these players at their peak. Uh, and again, it, it's I think a lot of it is is caught up in is 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 a lot of it is down to also the romance as well. The fact that it was the first the first to be broadcast live, the first in color. I think we see it through that sort of prism. Um, but. You know, there's definitely a, a a strong shout for it to be one of the greatest uh, greatest teams of all time. Now, you've also uh, written a book on Socrates, the the famous Brazilian player who was a doctor and lived a, a truly fascinating life. How was this experience for you doing this book compared to the process for that book? It was very different. Uh, first of all, because as an oral history, it's really all about the research. It's all about the interviews. You don't have to spend so much time thinking about the narrative or thinking about or crafting sentences as much as you do, you know, with a a, a, a book like Socrates. So that 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 was the main thing. The other thing was that you know I don't really remember the 1970 World Cup. I was I was I was I'd just been born, so I didn't feel that same you know personal connection as I did to mm-hmm. Socrates. Um, so these are the, these are the two main differences for me. But I think is. You know, I grew up in the 1970s, and even though I never saw the 1970 World Cup, even though I was too young, I was aware of how people viewed it. I was aware that there was this aura about it. And so, you know, that gave me some sort of, uh, you know, I kind of felt that responsibility in a way. You know, I know Pelé just got out of uh, the hospital in Brazil. He also just turned 81. And, And maybe for me, it's because we lost Maradona last year at age 60. But um, I, I find myself really rooting for Pele to, to continue doing his thing, you know, and, and, um, and be with us for as, obviously as long as possible. But um, what's your sense of, of Pele at this point? And, and is he part of, is, does he do much publicly in, in Brazil or, or how, how's that? going no in Pelé is it's it's been a few years now he's been you know since probably just before the pandemic he's been you know he's been sheltering uh you know he is getting on he's been in pain with his hip for a for for a good few years um and you know he's just you know he he, he's just he beforehand you could always rely on Pelé to appear you know regular regularly he would give press conferences you know he would be a sponsor for for certain companies and he he would appear and you could always ask him questions. And that's that kind of stopped being the case a few years ago. Um, you know, Pele comes from a family that are famous for for living a long time. His mother's still alive, believe it or not. Really? Um yeah. His 
it was his, his uncle or his grandfather lived to be over 100 as well. So, wow. I mean, there's a kind of little, there's a kind of famous thing, this thing about Pelé that, you know, if he lived to be 100, nobody would be really that surprised. You know, yeah. and let's hope that, you know, that he does, you know, that he, he, he remains as, as healthy and as, and as lucid and as happy as, uh, you know, as, as long as possible. But uh, yeah, it's definitely, we don't see as much as Pelé uh, as we used to. Are there any other projects, book projects in Brazilian soccer that you're interested? You seem, uh, you know, in doing potentially in the future? I mean, you've clearly done several now in, in English. Um, I have a few ideas, uh, none of which I can really say anything too much about. Um, but I do have, I do have ideas. It's just, it's hard. It's really is, it really has gotten unbelievably hard to talk to footballers now, you know, yes. even over the last few years, it, it's just, it's, it, it's just really, really hard to get, you know, to meet with footballers and to get them to, to talk to you. Uh, you know, and I'm not sure if it's about the money. I mean, I don't think it's about the money because they, they have plenty of money. I, I think it's about image mm-hmm. and I think it's about other concerns. Uh, I don't think, I think there is in the past, you know, players could kind of had, I think maybe players felt like a, grew up in a different area, different, I think players in the past maybe grew up in a different era where they kind of felt that responsibility of talking to the press was part of the job. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's, I don't think really the case any longer. So, uh, it's very difficult. I mean, Flamengo, or I mean, I was speaking to a Brazilian journalist about this last week. Flamengo haven't, uh, he tells me, let any of their players be interviewed for, for five months. Um, all their interviews are now are done on, uh, you know, their, their own television, their own television channel. Wow. Um, but it's the same thing in England. I mean, you know, I thought I would go to London and I would talk to, uh, be able to talk to, get interviews with Latin American players in, in, in England. And it's it's impossible unless you're a broadcaster. Mm-hmm. It's almost impossible to get an interview. Um, so, yeah, it's it's a struggle. It's a struggle. That, that I think that's maybe why I, I like doing historical books, because a lot of the old timers are much more, uh, much happier to talk than than than, than the, the current crop and the and the ones that have just retired. Yeah, that makes sense. And it coincides with my experience a little bit too. And it depends on certain countries, especially. I think in England, it's it's tougher sometimes. And uh, sometimes I think you have to be an official rights holder to be able to get an interview with certain players or coaches or, or what have you. But uh, the book is terrific. I, I really enjoyed reading it. I think our listeners will as well. If you ever have any curiosity about the 1970 World Cup, uh, one of the greatest World Cups of all time, the book is called The Greatest Show on Earth, The Inside Story of the Legendary 1970 World Cup. The author is Andrew Downey. Andrew, thanks so much for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. That was great fun. Thanks for listening to Football with Grant Wall. I'd like to thank Andrew Downey as well as producer and pundit Chris Whittingham. You can now sign up for a free or paid subscription to my new newsletter at grantwall.com. It has all my writing, including magazine-style features and on-location stories for every U.S. Men's World Cup qualifier. I can't tell you how much I appreciate your support with that. See you next time.